0: Hello and welcome to another Linguistics Career Cast, the podcast devoted to exploring careers for linguists outside academia. I'm your host, Laurel Sutton. Kate Mesh is a linguist who is working as a disability inclusive researcher in London, England. She helps major brands to improve their designs by observing the friction points and innovative solutions of their customers with a range of specific access needs. She leads accessibility-oriented projects that shape strategy and design choices for businesses ranging from retail corporations to government innovative agencies. She leads accessibility-oriented projects that shape strategy and design choices for businesses ranging from retail corporations to government innovation agencies. Her fieldwork in grad school was focused on studying how hearing people gesture when they speak and how deaf people adapt many of these gestures to use in young sign languages that are just now being created. Topics include ASL, sign linguistics, deaf studies, postdocs, work environments, networking, research design, project management, ethnography, Bible translation, and chatino links to kate's linkedin profile her github page and other resources are in the show notes i would like to welcome our guest today kate mesh thank you so much for coming on the podcast and chatting with me today oh Laurel, it's a real pleasure thank you so looking at your linkedin profiles i was saying before we get started you've had a wild ride (laughs) and i would love to know first as i ask most people how did you get interested in linguistics and also when you were in school in getting your undergraduate, did you even know what linguistics was? I had absolutely no idea what linguistics was. <laughs> okay. um, I was homeschooled and so did not oh, go to high school. Interesting.
1: It meant that um, decisions about what constituted an English class were entirely up to my instructor, who was my mother. And she had suffered uh, at the hands of many teachers who had forced her to diagram mm. sentences. And she oh, thought, I would not love literature and I would not love language if I had to learn about its structure. So mm-hmm. um, I read a lot. And then when I got to a certain phase, I took a Spanish class as a as a second language and started to be told, well, you can't do this because the pronoun is an object position.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I went, what is this magic? How can I learn all of this? <laughs> How can I apply it back to English, which I speak natively? And this inspired me to become an English major. And I went to college and jumped into a bunch of classes where uh, the idea was to inspire a love of literature, but not necessarily in the department I joined um, anything about the structure of English, uh, which I think is, is not very representative of, of English departments, but mm-hmm. that was that was their bent. Um, so I was going around just fruitlessly saying, but what if you really want to look at meter, but not just meter, what if you want to know everything about why people are structuring the sentences the way that they are? And the first college that I went to was a, a very um, particular Christian college. It was a very particular branch of a Presbyterian Christian college. And so the closest answer I got to what I wanted to do was that someone finally said, I get it. You want to be a Bible translator. You want to make dictionaries
0: and grammars
1: in service of translating the Bible. And at that particular time in my uh, education and in my life, I, I already had one foot out of that community and was saying, I do not think that the fit for me is here. So I thought, well, I don't want to be a Bible translator, but I do want to make these dictionaries and grammars of which you speak. So that got me as far as, well, that and a couple of philosophy of language classes where the professor would say, you know, the question you've raised is more of an empirical question, and we leave that to the linguists, and my Mm -hmm. brain went, the linguist? So that got me looking for a master's program in linguistics, but I mean, I, I felt like I was starting out so late that I'd finally figured out, I felt foolish, you know, I'm finishing an undergraduate degree and I finally figured out that the thing I wanted wasn't
0: English or philosophy, it was this other thing and it existed. But that's how I learned about linguistics. Wow, that's so interesting. There's such an intersection between the Bible translator people, and I'm thinking specifically of the Wycliffe Bible translators who are really well known, um, and how that intersects with uh, language preservation and, and other areas of linguistics. And I know there's always been friction there. Um, for lots of reasons, which we don't need to get into. Um, But the fact that, you know, this this was a viable, well, I won't say viable. It was a career path that you were pointed to, you know, Mm. in the early 2000s. I think a lot of people still think of it as sort of this 18th century thing you know (laughs) like like old timey linguistics and translation but it's not I mean it's it's still a thing that that people do and the the bible translations are valuable just in their own right in terms of some of the preservation um, work that that is done so you are literally the first person I've ever spoken to who said that (laughs) that that was like a thing that was offered to you as a career path that's fascinating well
1: better yet I was told that the thing I really wanted to do was to be a philologist but sadly Oh. Um, all those languages died, and so oh. the only option for living languages was to be a Bible translator. Wow. And at least it kind of uh, walked me down a path of saying, "Huh, um, and what is entailed here? Oh, making dictionaries and grammars." And wait a minute, it's funny. I ended up working later with some graduate students who were who came right out of these Wycliffe translation programs, and there was a really lovely moment where I said, um, "There's been a lot of friction here," and I think that a lot of the friction that I have experienced is around people being not equally interested in high quality linguistic research as they are interested in sharing this text. Mm -hmm. But I think we can get on the same page if we can agree, at least in this one area, that we're really interested in doing this well. And it was a great conversation because this other person said, "Um, I feel very strongly that I would be doing a disservice to everyone that I interact with if I'm not creating um, a high quality, Mm -hmm. natural translation. So in order for me to do the thing I value the most, which is to create this text and disseminate it, I actually really agree with you about your values in terms of the standards for for the translation. And I thought,
0: well, okay, we can get on the same page about this. Wow. Um, But yeah. Oh, so cool. Very cool. Okay. Um, So from that, you ended up going to a much larger university. so you you ended up working on ASL and sign languages. I did. So I went to Boston University
1: and I had just gotten this idea that linguistics would be a match for me because I could dig into English the way I wanted okay. to. So I got there and um, very quickly I went into an acoustic and articulatory phonetics class mm-hmm. and the person who was sitting next to me was deaf yeah. and she was a linguistics PhD student And interestingly, at that time, Boston University did not have a class on sign phonetics. They had a class on speech phonetics, and they required phonetics to graduate. So the student was there, and she had an interpreter standing at the front of the room. And the teacher was saying, "Um, if you think about something like placing your tongue on the alveolar ridge, what you want to do is make sure that the tip of your tongue is here. And the class is kind of staring at him stupefied. And the interpreter just cups one hand in the air and then
0: taps (laughs) exactly the right spot
1: with the other hand. Like your tongue comes up and it taps right here. And I was hooked. I just went, what is this system for conveying information in this this gorgeous way? Went and did every wrong thing you can imagine, introduced myself to the interpreter rather than to the student. Mm. And he rebuffed me quite quickly and said, why don't you talk to the person who's next to you? And she was just gorgeous and lovely and said, yeah, don't worry. You made some mistakes. Uh, come over to the dark side. Come do sign linguistics with us. And, um, and so I did. Uh, it, it was a little bit of a meandering path because the advice that I got, which I think was critical, was do not try to study a community that you don't have any connection to. Mm-hmm. Now, that it already gets you into these, these questions of um, positionality. Can mm-hmm. you how far can you get into a community and how can you position yourself authentically and say i am not from this community but i have a genuine interest in the linguistic structure and in the social structure of the languages that you use so i ended up working in the deaf studies department at boston university i was finishing a linguistics degree but i was my day job was to work in deaf studies and i took asl classes and then i took sign language structure classes and then i said yes i'm hooked
0: Let's keep going and did a PhD in sign language mm-hmm. structure. That's so cool. It's so funny what you were just saying about um, the studying or gathering data from certain communities. I mean, there's a, the issue of appropriation there, but it feels very parallel in a way to the Bible translating stuff. You know, it's like it's, <laughs> it, it is very much you as the outsider coming into a community and figuring out how you can uh, not integrate with them, maybe, but um, ride right along. And, and do it in a way that's yeah. respectful. Well, I thought that I was going to do that with American
1: Sign Language. And so I did take, oh my goodness, I think four years of coursework. And then at that point, um, spent a lot of time with people to, to gain more fluency. And I would say, by the way, that I'm conversational and not at all a beautiful signer. Mm-hmm. But um, I thought, well, that's great. I'll go and do a PhD and I'll work on ASL. And I got to the University of Texas at Austin to do a sign... PhD. And the first thing that happened was that a deaf deaf PhD student there said, "Um, there's an opportunity here that's a little unusual. But there is a major concentration in indigenous language documentation um, of Mesoamerican languages in this university. And as it happens, we have some colleagues who have been studying how a sign language is emerging in a community in Mexico that has a a quite high degree of deafness. So um, do you want to go into a community that's not in any way your community and then study how deafness um, is distributed in the population and then study how sign languages emerge in the conditions where they're necessary because there is no uh, pre-existing sign language and you need a practical way to communicate with your family members? And I said, sign me up. Well, so, yeah, always kind of circling that, that um, danger mm-hmm, mm-hmm. of, of uh, being appropriative or simply unwelcome, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. Um, learned a lot about what was really special about that invitation. Was the the deaf uh, PhD student who's Lena Ho. She now works um, as a as a faculty member at UC Santa Barbara in the linguistics department. But um, at the time, she said, "I wouldn't dare to do this if I wasn't invited, and not mm. just by somebody who's in the community and from the community. This is a linguist." Whose family members are deaf, mm-hmm. and so we went together as a hearing-deaf collaboration with multiple hearing linguists who were from this Chatino community. Chatino is um, it's a, a Zapotecan language um, in the Otomanguean language stock. So the Chatino linguists invited us. Then we came in and said we wouldn't do this work without having a deaf collaborator, and so we've got this this hodgepodge team, but it's it's really working well. So that's that's where I did my PhD. I did a lot of field work in um, San Juan Chieiche, which is
0: a small community in the um, south central area of Oaxaca, Mexico. Wow, that that's so cool and so interesting. I mean, being there sort of at the, the birth of an organic language that just happens. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> It's it's really fascinating. Um, and it
1: threw every impulse I had about grammars out the window, ooh, because here ooh. I was, the whole thing I wanted to do was nail down rules in this really artificial way, which I, I could have faced even working on variation in spoken language. But what I did was go into a community where everybody in the community is willing to use some shared gestures, things like a thumbs up um, that you and I would be familiar with, but lots of other shared gestures that mean things like... Um, non-existence, like there isn't any of this has a gesture in this community already Mm -hmm. that every hearing person knows, Um, so you're quite willing to gesture. And then deaf people who are using a much more elaborate system that is grammatically structured but that looks in many ways like some of the the core gestures that are already shared with hearing people, Mm -hmm. unsurprisingly. Mm -hmm. So I walked into this community and went, okay, first of all, it makes no sense to make a dictionary here because there are 13 deaf signers, right? Mm -hmm. Um, so a dictionary for whom and about what, Mm -hmm. um, and second, um, what is the distinction here between a commonly shared and easily accessible gestural system and a sign language? And that became a huge part of what I, I explored in the PhD was what's different about what deaf people are doing when this is their sole means of communication Mm -hmm. versus hearing people who share that with their spouses, their parents, their children but also use spoken chatino and potentially Spanish. And if we can document what's different when it becomes your sole system, we can start to dig in a little bit into this question of what's different between a shared gestural system and a
0: much more elaborated and grammatically fixed language. Right. So language emergence became the theme. Yeah, totally. I mean, it's it's the question of what is a language when when you're, you're yeah. looking at it, which is not a question that anybody feels um, compelled to answer. I mean, there there's no answer. It's it's a, a million answers, all at the same time. Oh, that's just yeah. so cool. Um, just an anecdote. I was reading a paper recently about um, Japanese sign language, and it was looking at some of the signs for um historical locations in japan oh nice and they were explaining where some of these signs came from and i was just completely blown away by how how much context you would need to understand the origin (laughs) of the sign not that it matters i mean you you know the sign and that's the sign like that's you don't need to know the etymology of every word that you say in even in english but um the person who wrote the paper, the team had really looked into these etymologies and it was incredibly layered and complicated and you'd have to know history of Japan going back a thousand years to really get (laughs) what it meant. And I was like, this is incredible, this is so cool. It's like the lore of the language, amazing. Oh yeah,
1: no, Japanese name signs are really fun too because um, the system for creating name signs, or well, the system for deaf education was really coming together at exactly the time when um, learning to write your name was emphasized. So a huge amount of naming in Japanese sign language is about um, demonstrating that you know the spelling. just um, is a rabbit hole. I, I, I worked with them um, Angela Nonaka, who worked on Japanese Sign Language at the University of Texas. And even though I claimed not to be uh, working on JSL, I just spent a lot of time with Angela talking about exactly this, (laughs) where are name's coming from in JSL. It's great.
0: So cool. Okay. Um, So that's awesome. Um, So while you were doing your your work, your postgraduate work, not postgraduate, but your graduate work, um, you were also working at the same time, right? Yes. This is something that I've talked with... Um, with some of the other guests and and a large majority of them have worked throughout their um, undergrad and then sometimes taking some years off between undergrad and grad and then continuing to work. And when I say work, I don't just mean the work that you're doing for your degree, but paid work outside of it. So you're really juggling two things at one time, which is not an experience that was common, you know, 20 or 30 years ago, but I think is far more common now because education is so expensive and most people don't have the generational wealth to support themselves while they're in graduate school. So it seems like that was true for you also. This was true. Well, this
1: was true in the master's program that I Mm -hmm. entered, that I worked full-time for the university. So I received a scholarship that was not, it was partial. It was an odd, it was an odd offer. But at the time um, I came from a family background that didn't um, have a lot of history of higher education. So there wasn't really anybody in my family who could assess mm-hmm, whether mm-hmm. an offer was a good one or not. Right. So what I received was a half scholarship. And I was told, you know, you could just take two courses per semester, but you do have to move to Boston, which is a very expensive city and then figure out what you're going to do with your life, mm-hmm. <laughs> how, how will you support yourself while you take these two uh, nominally free classes, right? And then when I got to BU, they said, what you can do is work for, uh, take any academic job on, um, sorry, any, any admin job on campus, any job you can get. And then as soon as you work for the university, um, two graduate courses per semester are free anyway. So forget your scholarship, give it away, just work full-time and then go to school part-time. Um, and so I did, it took a really long time to finish a master's degree that way. Yeah. And, um, it, what it meant actually was that at a time when I was, um, not treated well on the job, I couldn't leave mm-hmm. because, um, suddenly my graduate education depended on it. So there was a lot that if I could go back and advise myself, <laughs> I would mm-hmm. say, Hey, this is not, this is not a great system. Um you don't really want to be dependent on this job for the university in order to have your education. Mm -hmm. But that was what I did. Yeah. It's
0: always a a question of um, what you have to do, right? Like how much do you want to do this thing? Well, is is it enough to put up with, I don't know, an abusive work environment or something? Right. And um, there just aren't a lot of options. And even what you were describing, working a full-time job and then taking graduate level classes in addition to it, that's a lot, you know, that's a lot. And and it, it's, in a lot of ways, unreasonable to expect people to be able to do that. You know, I, this was also my experience. I, I worked all through graduate school and a lot mm-hmm. of other people did as well. And it's very, it's a very different experience than if you are lucky enough to have some support. So you don't have to do that. But I don't know that that's even a sustainable, not even sustainable. It's not even a... Um, practical solution to the problem you know how many people going into their graduate programs have the money to not work at all while they're doing it you know that's that's just not a thing anymore
1: i was really lucky i think that people were so transparent with me because i came from a different class background Mm -hmm. and i was just clueless and, and so clueless that i i dared to ask um are you making ends meet um because in my PhD program, I had a, I had a full scholarship, I had a fellowship uh, which involved teaching responsibilities. But at that time, and unfortunately, the University of Texas has really raised the, um, the pay rate, but at that mm. time, it was um, a very low paying job and Texas was a very, well, Austin was a very expensive yeah, city. It still is, I think. And, <laughs> it is. <laughs> and so I went to other graduate students and said, how are you making this work? Yeah. And they said, oh, my parents help with um, nothing other than housing, but they pay all of my housing. Mm-hmm. And I went, oh, wow, okay, that's a difference. Or, oh, I had some savings, and I decided to put the savings towards graduate school. And I thought, well, that's, that's also different from me. Um, what happened in grad school is that I, um, I did field work every summer in Mexico, and then I worked um, a nine-month job, right? So the fellowship was only paying nine months out of the year, and in the summer, um, I received Coverage for the expenses for travel and to pay my research participants, um, but it meant that because there was no other income, I would give up my housing. So every mm. year, I would move twice a year. Wow! <laughs> would, uh, move out of my housing in the summer and then find something else. Uh, put everything in storage and then find something else in the fall for six years. That's insane.
0: Um, that's that's <laughs> ridiculous. That's oh, okay. It's <laughs> wild. <laughs> Uh, sorry my mind's just boggling a little bit over the fact that you had to move twice for six years that's yeah
1: it's it's wild I don't recommend it no I that... <laughs> for no one
0: okay um, <laughs> so so you were working and you finished your PhD and and then um, you continued to stay in uh, academia for a little while anyway correct I did I did two postdocs so I did another four years beyond the PhD
1: and I think um, especially thinking towards listeners to this podcast. Um, I hope that people don't feel alone if they had the experience that I did. Um, But I I will tell you that I feel some embarrassment might be a light way to put it, um, or shame that when I did the PhD, I did not think about two things very clearly. The first was, um, what am I meant to be doing when I'm done here? Um, I just assumed that if you were successful, you ended up as a professor, Mm -hmm, which mm -hmm. was an assumption that might have been a little safer um, at the time that I started my master's degree, but was no longer safe by the time I began the PhD and was out of the question by the time I ended the PhD. Um, The market had changed so dramatically. Mm -hmm. And second, I, I didn't ask myself, do I like teaching. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's the bit where I say I'm a bit embarrassed to mention it because I was very good at it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so what, what I was receiving was a lot of um, praise from students, but also from the faculty saying, you're very good at this, you have what it takes, no matter how competitive the market will be, you will come out on top because you're an excellent instructor. Um, and because you love linguistics. And I didn't stop and say, I love running a workshop. I love interacting with a crowd. I love leading an ideation session. I like getting people thinking about a topic. But I do not love curriculum design. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I do not love grading. Mm-hmm. Um, and if this is a field where you are among, in principle, the luckiest people out there, what you get to do is a lot of curriculum design and grading. Mm-hmm. So what did I think the end point was going to be? So I I went and did uh, four years of postdocs. I did two in Israel, looking at um, sign languages, emerging sign language communities in Israel. And then I moved to Sweden and did research. So in Israel, I was at um, Haifa University, um, where they do a lot of work on on outside Bedouin sign language. And then um, I moved to Sweden where I worked on gesture studies um, in a department that just has a tremendous gesture studies program, uh, looking at co-speech gesture among the same Chetino population that I had been working with. Yeah, digging into the gesture side. Um, And I got such beautiful encouragement from my mentors saying, um, the field is getting harder, but you're really good at this. Um, And then I reached a point where I said, um, what would the cost be At this point, I haven't gotten a faculty position. I haven't convinced myself that I like teaching enough for the very teaching heavy positions that are coming out. So I'm already feeling some conflict as I go to apply for them, which doesn't seem like a good sign. And at this point, the market is so challenging that I'm being encouraged with statements like, well, if you want to stay in Europe, for example, what you can do is just keep going on soft money. You can do two years at a time, mm. pretty much indefinitely, as long as you're willing to move countries um, every two years. Uh-huh. So it's a little bit of the repeat of everything. Sounds every, familiar, yeah, move very all the time. familiar, yeah. <laughs> and I, I just hit a point where I thought, but I, I'm not sure I want to do that. Um, and I was quite lucky that um, I had spent a lot of time personally and professionally with computer scientists and that's a field where it's very common to jump back and forth between academia and industry. It's not a strange thing to do. And so, although in my mostly in my professional life, people were on the academic track for life. In my personal life, I was watching people jump back and forth, and they were normalizing for me. It's not such a bad thing to consider that the skill set you have could go to industry. Um, and I'm so grateful for that because I I didn't receive that from my academic mentors Mm -hmm. who were encouraging and kind, but who did not think to tell me, it's fine if you want to leave. Mm -hmm. Um, With one exception, who I'm I'm so grateful for, Marianne Goldberg, who was my, my faculty mentor in Sweden. And I came to her and said, I think I could be happier doing something else. And I genuinely don't know what that thing is, but we're in the middle of a pandemic. I don't think I'm getting a job the academic market on the next try and i've got a year left to sort it out what if i keep publishing with you and i spend all of my spare time finding an off-ramp and Mm -hmm. she said if it makes you happy put money towards it take part of the postdoc fellowship and go get training find someone who can help you to figure out what you want to do take classes um and i i could not have done the transition without her saying you don't have to do this secretly and by yourself and without my support or knowledge. I say, if it's what you want to do, go for it. Mm-hmm. Huge
0: difference. Just to jump back for a second, while you were doing these postdocs, were you doing them because they were amazing? They sound like amazing opportunities, honestly. Um, but were you also thinking of them as um, postponing the inevitable? You, you know, like doing, because for a lot of people, I think postdocs are a way to say, like, well, Jobs are really hard to get. I think I'll just go back to school for a while. You know, <laughs> it, it kind of feels like that. And you oh, yeah. know, granted, they were telling you, well, you could do this inevitable, um, you know, for the rest of your life if you really wanted to. But how did it feel when you were doing these postdocs? The first postdoc felt like
1: um, like an incredible opportunity, and it was. And it, it also felt like it was the right move towards. A professorship because I didn't feel that I had enough experience working Mm -hmm. in a lab environment to lead a lab. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I was moving more in that direction. I had a language documentation background, but I was asking a lot of questions about multimodality. So I was asking, How and when do you time the combination of a gesture with speech? And that question looks a lot more like a psycholinguistic question. Mm -hmm. So I was saying, If I'm moving towards a lab model, I need a very different experience in order to, to be prepared. So that felt wonderful. Then the second postdoc felt like an incredible opportunity because it was with, um, it was with a really prestigious uh, supervisor whom I had admired for so long. And it was a very difficult grant to receive. Um, I received a, a Marie Curie grant, mm-hmm. which is um, one of the most competitive postdocs in Europe. And so when I got it, everything about the narrative that said, you're gonna make it, um, you're the one who's so talented, that you can um be in the top uh what was it five percent of candidates out of phds and get this grant of course you're going to get a job and at that point i had the the seeds of doubt saying mm. what if i don't want the uh-huh, job uh-huh. but i was told um you have this magical unicorn grant <laughs> how, how are you not going to take it and and i'm so grateful that i did have it because um working with marianne was was so important um for me personally and professionally and then her support and saying, I don't think less of you, and I don't think you're squandering this postdoc if you use it to find out what you want to do mm-hmm. instead of teaching. Right. Um, not just instead of teaching, instead of a fairly solitary life. What, what I found was that I did not orient well to the model that says, collect a lot of data, tag and analyze it alone and sit and think mm-hmm. until, um, you have produced something. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I really struggled with that. And I wanted more interfacing with people. I wanted more looking at another researcher and saying, how can we co-design this and work together? And it's it's a model that works in some places in academia, but it's it's very difficult to do in an environment where um, single authored publications are still very common okay. and it can be quite competitive. And in fact, uh, co-authored publications are are... Well, they're increasing in frequency, but I was told, you know, you really need to be sure that your first author or last author, depending on how the lab model works, you're, you're the clear writer of this. Um, you need to be sure that your ideas and your line of research are distinct. And I thought, I, I don't want to be alone mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm.
0: and I don't want to teach. So wait a minute. Yeah. <laughs> what am I doing? Exactly. It's I'm so glad that you brought this up because it's something I've talked about with just about everybody who's been on here, and that's figuring out what kind of work environment you will thrive in. And it's not something that ever really gets discussed. You know, it it should. It should be a thing that that people tell you about and and say, hey, why don't you think about where you like to work? And not, you know, it could be physically too. Do you like working at home? Do you like working in an office? Do you get on with other people or do you want to be by yourself? You know. You can't be successful in whatever your chosen career is if the work environment, and I mean that in all senses of the word, is a mismatch because you're just never going to feel good about it, right? And you can't do your best work if you don't feel good about the way in which you're working. Absolutely. Um, I was so grateful for this book called What Color Is Your Parachute? Oh, yes. Yeah, so it's been mentioned by many other people. Yeah.
1: It it sounds a bit silly. And even what I'm about to tell you sounds silly, but it was transformative for me. It, it said... Um, people love to complain. So why don't you complain about everything you ever hated in the last 10 jobs you've had? Make a list. And then take everything on the list and turn it on its head and say, if I hated this, what would I want Mm -hmm. instead? And now you have a list of everything you want in a job. And then you take that list and you start ruthlessly prioritizing. Well, (laughs) if I want um, to live in a place that is near family, is that more important than I want an office with lots of light? Um, Whatever it is that is the most important to you pull it to the top because um when you are trying jobs that are unfamiliar to you or you are trying for um any job where someone really wants you they will make a pitch that sounds wonderful and you need to come back and look at your priority list and say actually what i want is this so so it was just a great experience to to sit and say is it acceptable to say that i i absolutely love um coming up with ideas with groups of people and i do not love grading and the answer was you know who's looking you're talking to yourself <laughs> so mm-hmm. so
0: it's fine it's um it it sounds like for you it was a gradual process of coming to this realization you know you use the word seeds of doubt and those obviously grew over time some folks that I've spoken to have had kind of an inciting incident that was hmm. like, oh, I get it. I'm not supposed to be doing this. I would be much happier. Was there ever just a, a time that you can remember when there was a, a clear thought that just was blindingly obvious to you, like, you know what, I need to be doing something else? Or it, it really does sound to me like it it was much more gradual and you were really actively working towards it. to to get out of the academic setting as far as what your future was going to look like? There was an inciting
1: incident. Um, I did my first application for an academic job and every piece of, every material that I had to write, (laughs) every description of why I was going to be a good match for the faculty um, and what I could contribute to the university, um, I felt sick. I was so anxious about it, wow. and saying, "Why am I saying that I'm eager to um, to engage with the curriculum design committee? I, I'm not. Why am I saying that I'm eager to head a lab of which there is no co-head? I am not. Um, why am I saying that I'm eager to move?" Uh, to this particular location I am not and so I, I almost didn't submit it and then I finally did and I got a letter back the, the job seemed fabulously matched to me and so I felt that I couldn't not submit it because it said we're looking for someone who looks at um, underdocumented languages or modalities so it could be sign languages it could be indigenous languages it could be gesture speech systems and we're interested in people who are um, interested in exploring more um Empirical approaches, which at that time I, I was using, it, and I said, "Oh, this, I just have to do it." And I got a letter back saying, "Of the 400 people who had a similar skill set, you were not selected." And I just went, "Oh, I I hated everything about, <laughs> about, about. I'm so relieved that I was not selected." And also, 400 people, and I thought this was a match for me. So it was a it was an aha moment about the market, uh, but it was a bigger aha moment about myself. And it was one where I had such supportive supervisors all the way through who told me, we will help you to do this. And I think I, I was worried to say, but it makes me sick. But I don't want to, because I didn't want to say to people whom I admired so much, um, you want to help me to become like you and I don't want to do that. Um, that's so challenging to say nothing about my respect or admiration for you has changed but I don't want to do what you do. And so because you are my mentor, I
0: have to disappoint you. Can I just go back for a second to the 400 people applying for the job part of it? <laughs> <laughs> I, I fell out of my
1: chair and then I, I, and I was, so, I was um, relieved and happy and flabbergasted.
0: Oh, there's 400 other people who are as subspecialized as I am. Okay, we're done. Unbelievable. I, I mean, given all of the things that you described, what that job was for, Right. And people who had that very particular skill set and experience and desire to keep working on it. And there were 400 people who were applying for it. I mean, OK, I I am just uh, I'm astonished at that number because it's so incredibly high. But also, you know, this is no one ever told you that. Right. Did anyone ever (laughs) say to you, you're going to be applying against hundreds, perhaps thousands of people for these jobs? It, it is never presented like this incredible, you know, competition of, of so many people who are just as smart as you and just as qualified with you. And in some cases, probably desperate to get this job because their life circumstances are different. You know, it, it, it's yeah. always so like, well, you're obviously the best person for the job and, and you'll get it without mentioning the intense competition and that there are just so many people out there. Okay, sorry, I'm, I'm yeah, still reeling it, from that a little bit.
1: I was reeling for a really long time. The other aha moment for me came when I, you know, I hadn't been earning very much as a PhD student, mm-hmm. of course, we talked about that. Um, and I hadn't earned that much as a postdoc, although it did start to get better. And because it was getting better, I asked quite late in life, relatively speaking, uh, what should I do to prepare to retire? Mm-hmm. And um, sat and looked at my options and said, wait a minute, if I get some of these jobs, I cannot do the, prepa- the preparation that I need to do. Um, and at that time, a family member was diagnosed with an illness and I thought, oh, well, there's actually gonna be more here. thats mm-hmm. <laughs> It's not just me retiring, it's potentially supporting parents. Um, that can't happen. And again, if no one's looking, you get to say, I'd like to be paid really well. Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> right? I'd like to not grade, and I'd like to be paid well, and I'd like to live where I want to live and not have the only city that perhaps there were fewer than 400 applicants or you were the number one
0: um, as my option. So there was just a lot that started to crystallize at the same time. And and all of those things that you mentioned are completely reasonable things, right? They're, they're yes. not pie in the sky, you know, I, you're crazy for asking for these things. Who asks for things like that? No, they're just normal job requirements that everybody should think about when they're trying to find a job. They really are. Yeah. The
1: other piece that did eventually motivate me is that I, um, partnered with a computer scientist who stayed in academia. So my partner got, um, a tenure track job. And then the question was, um, am I really interested? You know, I was so far towards, uh, leaving academia at that point. And then, um, He got a job in London. And I said, London is a great opportunity. um, But you know, they don't have that many jobs doing the thing that I. Wait, do I want to do it? Um, And he was wonderfully supportive about saying, you know, to me, it doesn't seem that strange that you might go from academia to industry. But I see that you're grieving some parts of Mm -hmm. this or that you're worried about Mm -hmm. disappointing so many people who have been so meaningful to you and whom you admire so much. Um, But it was helpful to say, it's perfectly legitimate to say that I want to um, prioritize living in the same place where my partner is, because I, I had this partner through all of my postdocs. Um, and we lived together in Israel and apart when I was in Sweden. And then when he got the London job, I said, "This is, there's just an awful lot of our relationship that has been us trying to navigate. Mm-hmm. Um, will I also get an academic job and where? Right? And I, I, I just, I'm not inclined to ask that question anymore, which felt Uh, In some respects, I worried that it was anti-feminist, that maybe for feminism, what I should do is go get a faculty job somewhere else Mm -hmm. and take it. Mm -hmm. And then I said, you know, maybe it's feminist to get a job that's very high paying in another field. Uh,
0: So I I had some good options. Yeah, I I don't know this for a fact, but I suspect that within academia, the assumption is still that female partners are going to follow their male partners to where yes. they're going um, I think it's changing but it used to be absolutely 100% the expectation and I still think it's a pretty high percentage where if you wanted to do something on your own your male partner's not going to follow you it's got to be the other way around yep yeah, yep
1: yeah. um and we had that conversation my partner said would you want me to not have the tenure track position because we should follow you and I said um no mm-hmm uh, I've, I've thought through these options and I think there are some pretty good options for me that would make me quite ha- Well, at that time, whether I would be quite happy was still in question. Um, I knew that there were parts of the academic experience that were making me unhappy, but I did not know if I could find something that would make me happier elsewhere. I, I really thought I'm, I'm lonely. I work mm-hmm. by myself so much. Mm-hmm. I don't seem well suited to doing that. Um, when I do teach, I enjoy so I standing up and lecturing leading a discussion i love the minute that i am asking what is my educational uh, rubric it's I, I think i might be exaggerating it in this conversation because i did not hate that work but i did not thrive in it mm-hmm. um so so it was it was clarifying it was helpful and and then the question was um great so what skills could i bring somewhere else um, as someone who hasn't just done uh, an undergraduate degree or a master's or a PhD, but is now two postdocs mm-hmm. into mm-hmm. dedication to linguistics, what what do I do? So at that stage, I, I was so fortunate. Um, I started talking with Nancy Frischberg, a friend mm-hmm. of the podcast, who yeah. <laughs> has given so much advice to linguists looking for industry positions. And, and Nancy actually has a background as a sign linguist. Mm-hmm. So I said, wait, you are that Nancy Frischberg? <laughs> We definitely should talk, but she was so helpful and encouraging about um, connecting me to a network of people in various fields that I started to say this might be a match. Um, I, I know that the, the value probably in telling my story is that it can help people to see one decision path and that it's not necessarily replicable, but I have been frustrated that sometimes um, listening to people give advice very generically about transitioning out of academia, they'll say things like, you have many skills as a linguist and you can apply them. And I think, sure, but what skills? And I can tell you which ones I ended up deciding were the most central to try to use in the transition, knowing that that may not generalize to others. I realized that there is an enormous amount of non-academic or commercial research being done. So if you have a research background and you know how to design a study, there are some top-notch researchers out there that you can join. It, it is not true that all of your uh, skilled researchers are in academia. And if you can translate a set of questions into a research design, that's, that's highly mm-hmm. um, valuable. <laughs> that's, that's monetizable, right? That had not occurred to me uh, as an academic. Um, project management, maybe all of this desire to, to simplify and, um, even with language to, to, uh, look for the rule systems and find a good way to, to play Tetris, Mm um, made me dispositionally very good for project management. And I had found that by leading small teams when I was doing Mm -hmm. the final postdoc, because I'd, I'd had enough funding to work with other researchers and to employ them. So, um, I could say I have led a team. Um, And I've been a project manager for that team. Then there's ethnography, which helped me to think about positionality and and just the ways we were talking about to understand that I might be doing research on a topic and that I'm not speaking from my own experience. Mm -hmm. And in fact, if I chose to speak from my own experience, that would be one particular type of research, but largely I won't be doing that. And that means my my job is to assemble the right people to provide their experience and expertise Mm -hmm. And so so I'll be doing, again, more of the design side of it if I'm doing my job well, and it's okay to say that, especially thinking about things like deafness and deaf communities that I, I would never present myself mm-hmm. as an insider of that community, but I can design and execute a study about deafness that selects um, a broad range of participants who have different experiences of deafness. And I had had that experience over and over in, in these postdocs. Um, and then there were other pieces of subject matter expertise that I think you might, you might bring with you or not, depending on your career path um, as a linguist outside of academia. I had talked to a lot of recruiters for tech companies like Meta, and they had said, what we want you for is your analytical skill set, and what you did for your subject matter expertise has nothing to do with what you will do if you come and work for us, so you can kind of say goodbye to that. And I, I just didn't buy it. Uh, I just didn't believe that there was nothing about what I had done before that would, that would transfer mm-hmm. over because I'd done a lot of work on disability studies and I'd done a lot of exploration around communication barriers mm-hmm. and around, um, what, uh, discourse analysis. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. asking, how can we really systematically track where this conversation went awry <laughs> and, um, what are the strategies that bring it back? And I thought, how could that not be relevant mm-hmm. to an industry position? So in the end, I, I I really looked at disability studies as something that I was passionate about and that I had a small subject matter expertise in, or maybe not small, a deep but narrow subject mm-hmm. matter expertise in since I was looking at deaf studies. And I went and did a certification called the... Um, CPAC, the Certified Professional and Accessibility Core Concepts. It's uh, provided by the IAAP, the International Association of Accessibility Professionals. And essentially, it, it when you receive it, you, you pass a test in order to, to be certified. And in order to do that, you know what I now recognize to be the bare minimum about accessibility <laughs> core concepts, but it's incredibly broad. It's asking questions like, if you use sip and puff technology, in order to move a mouse because you have um, no dexterity or not enough dexterity Mm -hmm. in your hands to use a mouse? How does that work across a variety of products? Or um, what are the experiences of autistic users of certain types Mm -hmm. of websites? So uh, it really forced me to dig in and say, I can connect this to what I did with my PhD. I can dig in. I I know where I'm going with this. Um, And as I was getting that certification, I I was exploring okay, if I know how to run research end-to-end and I have a subject matter expertise that's around um, disability and accessibility concepts and communication design, essentially, Mm -hmm. what I might be really suited for is to work inside um, either the research component of um, a major company or to work in a research consultancy Designing studies that are specifically about accessibility. Mm-hmm. So I worked with Nancy Frischberg particularly at that time She was doing career coaching. I don't think she does that in quite the same way now but um, She helped me to network to a lot of people who had exactly this kind of position mm-hmm. so that I could just ask them. How do you do this? Um, what does your day look like and I um, Specifically, she helped me to do that inside London because I I got a lot of wonderful information about how it's done in the States and it didn't matter because I Mm -hmm, wasn't there. mm -hmm. So um, the networking made all the difference in the world because by the time I'd had good conversations with accessibility professionals in London, if I'd had enough of when a job came open in a research house, my name got passed to someone. I didn't apply for the position that I have now. Mm. Actually, I had I was uh, open for work on LinkedIn and I was approached by the director of um, a disability and age inclusive research house and asked about taking on a, a senior researcher position. So I wonder what might be the best thing to
0: explain about this, this process for podcast listeners. I, I think you've, because I was going to ask you, that was actually my next question was, did you get this current job through a recruiter or just through the network? And obviously it's through the network. I, I think we cannot, overemphasize the value of networking, because <laughs> it, it does in its best form what you just described. So you talked to people, and you got to know them, and they got to know you. That's the thing. It's a two-way street. So by talking with them, not only did you learn something, but they learned about you and what your skill set is and, and what kind of position you might be suited for, so that when positions come up, they, they're not filled by machines, right? Like they're, they're people, the person who has to hire goes to their friends and the other people that are, hey, you know anybody who would be good for this job? I mean, that's how business works. That's really how business is at its core is people going, do you know somebody who would be good for this position? And yes. sure, there are open calls for jobs that are put out there and there are recruiters and there are lots of different ways, but it comes down to people going, who do you know that would be good for this position? And because we're humans and we like to be social and we like to to pay things forward, if somebody knows about you and thinks you're a good fit, they will step right up and go, hey, I know this person and I think they might be a good fit. Why don't you talk to them? Yeah, yeah. It, it was uh,
1: remarkable. It took a lot of time and networking. It took about six months mm-hmm. to meet enough people and have enough conversation and actually just a, a, a bit of faith inside my own family because we were asking how long can we go without me right. providing any income? Yeah and saying, we think this is the right way to do it. And actually, I just had the most fantastic conversations, um, multiple lovely conversations with the head of accessibility at that time at the BBC, who has since moved on to to something else. And um, when the time came, um, I think he was the reference. Mm -hmm. that he he said, I've talked to this person. They can design a study. they are an academic which means that it's harder for them to demonstrate that they would provide value on specific market research projects or on specific product design research projects but but this person can do it Kate can do it and um
0: that that was tremendous it it made all the difference yeah and two it's it's the thing that will help you throughout the rest of your life so As you go through your career, no matter where you are and what jobs you have, because you're very likely to have multiple jobs over the course of your career, it's all networking. And every person that you talk to who has a good experience with you, they might be the person that recommends you for your next job. And you might be the person that recommends them for their next job. So it's all just a big circle of networking that goes around that will be there for you. And the more you put into it, the more you get out of it. It is absolutely true.
1: And I got such good advice, which was um, networking is about establishing what you jointly find really cool. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And it means that you may not be looking for a job and you may not have any professional reason to reach out to somebody except to say, hey, I remember that we talked about this and I still think it's really cool and I'm going to send you some information about it. And if you can do that periodically, you get this relationship that is genuine and that persists Mm -hmm. and that that is absolutely has implications for your ability to find a job in the future, but that doesn't feel artificial. Yeah. Um,
0: that That's just fantastic. Yeah, uh, amazing. I'm so glad that we got to talk about this because we say it so much to students that this is something that you need to do. And I, I think a lot of people have quite a lot of anxiety around it because it's not something that you do as part of your life. You know, it, it's, I certainly had to learn how to do it when I was entering the business world. Like this idea of business friends it's not like, <laughs> it, you know, it's not like work friends. Business networking is not something that we're taught how to do, not in real life and not in academia. And I'm so glad that you mentioned that it is a genuine thing because sometimes people think networking means uh faking friendship with people. And that's not at all. It's just a different type of relationship. It's a peer to peer relationship. It's a it's a business relationship. Sometimes it deepens into real friendships. I've certainly made friends, like real friends with people that I got to know through various types of work. But it, it is genuine in that you are trying to help each other It's competitive, but it's also really wanting to bond with people who have the same, like you were saying, the same interests, the same kind of things that you find super interesting, the things that you want to do with your career, and you're sharing that to the benefit of both of you. It's not something where you're doing it to beat other people at some kind of game. It's just to be part of this community, and it is very genuine and you should feel good about making those connections because people do genuinely want to help i think that is at the bottom of it that people want to help they want to lend a hand when they can they really do and since
1: starting my position it's been really wonderful that people have come and said hang on you came from academia uh how Mm -hmm. (laughs) i have thought thank goodness i get to talk to somebody and be in the other position of not having all the answers but saying let's try to sort this out together because it's it's not as difficult when you have someone with you
0: yeah exactly so why don't
1: you tell us a little bit about what it is that you do at your job so i i am a research manager and specifically for this job my title is inclusive research manager and that's because i work in a disability and age inclusive research house so a lot of times when you want to do research about a product how it's designed and how it will be used. And if you want to do research about a particular market target, you will pick a really broad spectrum of people. And if you are um, representative enough in this sample, there will be some people who are older, or there will be some people who have specific disabilities, but you aren't being very intentional about saying, does this one product actually work for people who have a really wide variety of access needs? And will it work well? As we are aging, is it essentially future proof for people? Mm -hmm. And what we do is specifically bring in expertise and lived experience from people who have disabilities. Now, I just want to stop, this will be um, relevant for any linguists who are thinking about language use. In the United States, it's very common to use person first language, so we often say things like people with disabilities and the explanation for that is that it's really respectful because it places the person first and then describes any other characteristics, whereas in the UK, the preference is much more for identity first language like disabled people. And the explanation is that the identity is really critical and something that's not that shouldn't be stigmatized and that we can take pride in. And so it's very respectful. Mm -hmm. So it's really hard to be in a research house that works in the US and the UK Mm -hmm. because you eventually have to say uh, we've chosen to use language in this way. We know that it won't suit all communities. We want to be respectful and we recognize that we can make adaptations in the moment if we're speaking to uh, you about what you prefer, because these these preferences, they're they're somewhat predictable geographically, but it's not perfect, Um, but um, please give us some grace and let us demonstrate to you that we're coming with the right intent. So forgive me, I'm going to jump back and forth and say disabled people and people with disabilities and and confuse everyone. But the work that we do is to bring experiences of, of very relevant consumers, so people who are users of a product or potentially not users of a product, but highly interested in the product. And what we look at ranges from um, beverage packaging all the way through to train design. Um, we do work on, I, I had a quick chat with my boss today to ask which projects can I just name check? Mm-hmm. <laughs> she said, here's a list that we don't have an NDA for. Um, so we did work, we're really proud this work to be working this year to be working with Coca-Cola. Mm-hmm. So. Um, we're doing work on packaging design. Um, Coke has a product that is is beloved around the world and really hard to open, <laughs> whether it's in a glass bottle or it's in um, plastic PET packaging or it's in a can. And so we're looking at a lot of different features of uh, can and bottle opening. And as somebody who used to go frame by frame through videos and ask about joint flexion for signers, it feels really reminiscent mm-hmm. to do this about joint flexion for uh, bottle openers. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, that's some work that we're doing now. We are working with Walmart because they have um, uh, an adaptive component to their websites, meaning they're, they're looking for the right way with community member input to help with the navigation process if you're looking for adaptive products. So um, knobs to put on steering wheels. Um, Uh, alerts that will help you to um, get information from the appliances in your home in a way other than the way that they produce it. So if it makes a sound Mm -hmm. to help you see it visually, um, if it uh, has a visual input to or a visual display to help you hear it, Um, all of those pieces you can find on Walmart sites, but not necessarily that easily. So they are looking for support as they reach out to community members and say, What would make you feel that this was appropriate and representative of your community and what would make it easier to use? So we do that. A project that I got to lead last year that was absolutely fantastic is from a client that I cannot name. It will be quite easy to resolve this one with Google, but we worked for one of the major chocolate candy and bar creators in the UK. They wanted an advertising campaign because they have um, a connection um, that they've built with the National Deaf Children's Society. What they wanted to do was create an ad campaign that would celebrate sign language, so here BSL, and talk about it as something that makes communication more inclusive. And of course, as a linguist, I wanted to come in and say also just cooler, (laughs) Um, but they really wanted to talk about um, a program that the National Deaf Children's Society has that's just tremendous where they pair deaf coaches and mentors with hearing parents of deaf children very early on and Mm -hmm. say, you can use sign language in your home. Um, And they had a lot of ideas about how to create an advertisement that would really convey how meaningful sign language use is to deaf signers. Um, And then all kinds of questions came up. Do all deaf people use sign language in the UK? No. So can you characterize all deaf people as signers? No, you cannot. when and how is sign language used among deaf and hearing people? What would be an appropriate advertisement that would capture the feelings of the deaf community and that would appeal to hearing people who have no idea what the deaf community is mm-hmm. or what happens inside it? And I got to say, um, I'm so glad you asked me because I will not answer the question, but I will find you the group mm-hmm, of people mm-hmm. who can answer the question yes. and then I will ask the question in the right way. Mm-hmm. Um, so at that point, we, we formed a co-creation group and we had um, a high number of deaf people who were sign language users, not sign language users. We had hearing people who had deaf parents, so who were able to talk about the experience of being native signers, but not deaf. Uh, We had interpreters. um, We had hearing parents of deaf children who were coming in from the opposite angle of saying, I'm really um, learning about this community and I have very specific questions. And we worked with the, uh, we we had storyboards sitting out there saying, well, what do you think about this narrative? (laughs) Well, what do you think about that narrative? And then taking it a step further and saying, can I ask you a series of questions that are about your life that have nothing to do with this narrative? Mm -hmm. The work that I did on that project was to curate the group of people, but it was also to find and um, prepare interpreters and do that in the right professional way here in the UK. It was also to liaise with um, market researchers and advertisers who had a lot of questions that they'd didn't feel confident to formulate in a way that would get through well to a deaf group. They weren't sure about being culturally appropriate and they weren't sure about um, how to work with interpreters. So a lot of training on all sides. And then with all of those pieces in place, we could do the co-creation and they came out with just a beautiful advertisement last year. So that work I would never have said, I want to do market research. I'm coming out of linguistics and I really think my heart is going to be into looking at target markets. But as soon as you added of deaf people, I got really excited. Mm -hmm. So the conditions were right to do that kind of work. um, We're doing a lot of work now with um, a brand that is um, a creator of hardware stores and they do fixtures and fittings in kitchens and bathrooms. So we're doing just a tremendously interesting project asking how do people with a wide variety of access needs currently use their kitchen? And what I'm doing for that project is research design. So working with the client to ask, well, what are the exact questions that you really want to answer and what's the scope for them? What are the right tools to answer it? So um, when is a survey appropriate and with what population? When are diary studies appropriate, where people can take us through their experiences in their homes using software like a phone app that will allow them to record what they're doing in the kitchen? When is in-home observation important? When should I actually go in and as an observer, be there and have that dialogue in real time and not just be receiving diary entries? And how can we combine all these things in a reasonable timeframe to answer your specific Mm -hmm. question? So as research manager, I create the research design then I work with a wonderful team of other research managers and senior researchers to create each of the components, whether those are surveys or diary study prompts or observation notes for, or a guide for observers. And then we implement it. So we have a relatively small team, even as a manager, I get to go in and and do this work that I've, that I've just designed. So I get to go into people's homes and work on the diary study entries and, and do theme coding, which again, not unfamiliar from work in linguistics or certain types of linguistics, right? So this is the place where sometimes linguists will say, yes, the things that I learned how to do are relevant. And I can point to these and say, theme coding is what I did in my postdoc when working with signers um, to try to understand how they conveyed ideas about space using specific kinds of signs. And it's exactly what I'm doing now when I'm working with a pan disability study Mm -hmm. about Use of kitchens. Experimental design is what I did throughout my PhD in postdocs, and that hasn't changed in any way since I've gone to an industry position. Um, personnel management is something mm-hmm. that I started to do towards the end of my postdoc. And now I have a really lovely team of researchers here. And I, I, I think I say a lot of lovely and brilliant now because I've been in the UK long enough mm-hmm. that I've, I've gotten co-opted into that speech community. But I just have a great team of researchers who are highly capable and can say, let's try this together and I can lean on your expertise and know that you will come back in and say, yes, let's try this together, but I, I want to come in and tweak it a bit and, and really have confidence in my team. So that's what I'm doing now. The, I'm trying to think if there are any projects that would also bring in specific skills as a linguist. The, the disability study skills are, are obviously there. The experimental design skills are there to some extent depending on the product product and the project we are looking at communication breakdown Mm -hmm. sometimes we're doing it it, incidentally right Um, if you're running an all deaf focus group with uh, online with zoom with uh, multiple interpreters who are pinned on the screen there's a whole lot of communication breakdown that you just need to be able to manage in real time Mm -hmm. and say hold on there's something that's not working in our system let's resolve it and I wouldn't have originally described that as a skill set, but I've now learned it is. Uh-huh. Um, and evidently, I developed it over time. Mm. So scanning visually and saying, oh, I see which Zoom box <laughs> is has a plaintive hand waving uh-huh, saying uh-huh. this is not working um, is, is a built skill. Um, then I think probably the other relevant piece that comes from my my academic work, and that translates here largely, is reporting. Mm -hmm. So in the industry that I'm in, which is um, market and user research, the preferred reporting tool is PowerPoint. Mm -hmm. You want to make a a slide deck. Mm -hmm. And boy, do we do a lot of that in academia. Mm -hmm. So when I was told, oh, the the thing that you do for this job is that you report using a deck, and then you actually present it to people in an engaging way. I thought, "Uh every PhD should be able to do that. So I think those are the places where I don't feel that I'm learning an entirely new skill set to do the job mm-hmm. that I do today. There is a lot of vocabulary that I have to learn, and there's a lot of jargon that, um, like, uh, create value, which means bring money. Yes, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <Right? laughs> um, so picking up on all that jargon has been a challenge to do quickly enough, but it's it's something that's come to me. Well, so far in my first year and a half of doing this position, I started as a senior researcher, and I was just promoted to a management position. So I'm feeling grateful and um, really appreciative of the opportunity to to move into this different space and say, "Oh, I guess I'm doing more project management and more personnel management now." But it's a, it's a bit like an academic role as a as a lab lead in that you're saying, "What I get to do is maximize my impact now yeah. because I really trust my team." And
0: I get to go and do more than one person can do. Mm-hmm. And I'm not alone. Yeah. Your job sounds great. <laughs> just listening to <laughs> you describe all these things, it just sounds so cool. Um, In in hearing you go through all these different specific skill sets, and thank you for doing so, sort of breaking it down like that, which is fantastic. I think that is something people can really pick up on and apply to their own situations. There's some stuff at the core of it that I think is common to all linguists. So you you mentioned right at the end there, having to learn a lot of stuff. And I think yes. everybody does when they come into it. But you know what? Linguists are real good at learning stuff, like real fast most of the time, right? Because yeah. you have to, um, especially when you're doing your own work, you're constantly getting new data, new information thrown at you, and you have to, you're, you know, your uptake has to be really quick to do that. So I think linguists are really good at that, just across the board, learning new stuff. So you shouldn't be afraid going into a new position. It's like, oh, I'm going to have to learn a lot of stuff. It's like, well, you can do that. You're good at school. You can Can learn things, Um, so that's part of it. And then the other part, overall, is just um, the organizational skills, which get applied in lots of different places, whether it's designing experiments or personnel management or just project management. And again, as linguists, that's what our jobs are all about: is just learning how to organize things, pattern matching, finding out how things relate to each other, and putting stuff in the right buckets. And that's the skill you learn from day one as a linguist: is how to organize things.
1: Yeah, really comically to me because, you know, we spend so much time as linguists saying that just because you're a linguist doesn't mean you're a quick study with languages. Actually, the other component of the job here is that I'm working with BSL signers and and I sign ASL. So Mm -hmm. one of the first things that really convinced me that this research house was genuine and authentic is that they said, well, of course, we would want you to take BSL classes. You can't work with the deaf community Mm -hmm. here if you don't sign their language. So we would never propose that you walk in even necessarily as a skilled signer at some point of BSL and that you don't have a skilled interpreter. So my supervisor said immediately, we we wouldn't have you come in even as a skilled signer without a, a native signer or a very skilled signing interpreter with you But we're not going to have you in that community saying, well, I've studied American Sign Language and an indigenous sign language of Mexico and an indigenous sign language of Israel and Israeli sign language. And that just makes me qualified. Mm -hmm. That's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. So I spend three hours a week in a BSL class thinking, oh, yeah, linguists who don't necessarily learn languages. Well, it's another one we we can
0: master. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And it certainly is applied here. Yep. I I mean, yeah, I I agree. I mean, that's the stereotype about linguists, right? How many languages do you speak? But it's, but it's not that it's not even learning new languages. It's just learning, learning stuff. And, and also, as you're saying, being aware of what you don't know, right? Like that you're not an expert in certain things. Maybe you have enough knowledge to understand the topic without being the, the SME or, or, um, putting yourself forward as an expert so yeah it doesn't have to I know that everybody knows this already but no you don't have to speak all these languages to get jobs as linguists but just knowing that you can learn to learn that's the important part. I I just couldn't agree more Um, it's it's been really helpful
1: to say in my current position I couldn't possibly know the answer to the research question that you're asking um, and if I did, then you shouldn't pay me to research mm-hmm. it. But I can ask a great question.
0: Yeah, that's it. You know who to ask. that's that's the thing. The, yeah, the other thing about your job um that I think is really important to highlight, and maybe we can wrap on this, is, you know, there's still an idea that when you go into an industry job, into business, You're now entering, you know, late stage capitalism and it's all terrible and all it is is about making money and nobody cares about people. And when you're in academia, it's pure because you're doing research that is untainted by whatever. And that's all bullshit. Like we all know that that's not true. (laughs) But I think your job, the work that you do, is so um, emblematic of work that is done in the business sector for the good of people like all the work that you're doing is to benefit people who need that kind of help and there are huge multi-billion dollar organizations take coca-cola who are willing to put money towards that you know if yes. if your thing is that you want to do good in this world you can do that in industry there are jobs where you can do that kind of thing where you're not just you know serving capitalism but you're you're serving other people in a way that makes the world a better place It it is
1: absolutely what drew me to this work. Now, there are moments when, again, the idealism that I have can be (laughs) quickly shattered. Right? (laughs) This is this is this is commercial work. And there are times, in fact, when our research participants will say something. Like, I'm so glad this is happening because this is such good work. And I have to say, I agree with you that this change needs to happen in the world, but I need to express to you that this is commercial work, right? Mm -hmm. That what you are doing is giving insight to designers who are going to make a product that they will charge money for. So I agree with you that this is the best way forward in our society to get this product done. And I just want you to, I, I never want you to think, um, I'm doing God's work because I'm really doing Coke's work. Right, right. But if we get it right, yeah.
0: then we're doing Coke's work in a way that makes it possible for everybody to get into a Coke bottle. Right. It, you know, we're not going to burn the system down today and start <laughs> over again tomorrow, but we all need jobs. We all need to do things. And if you can do a job that uses your background to make life better for some people, I mean, that's pretty much as good as it gets these days, I would say. Yeah. I think so, too. This has been fantastic. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. I know I've kept you way more than the time we had originally scheduled, but this is like all of your experience and all the work that you do is so interesting to me and I think will definitely be interesting to our listeners. Can people contact you through LinkedIn if they'd like to do an informational interview or just to get in touch with you? They absolutely can. Um, Find me on LinkedIn at
1: Kate Mesh, and I'm sure you'll be able to link that to the show as well.
0: I will put it in the show notes. So, Kate, thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciate the time that you spent with me today. Oh, I really appreciate it, Laurel. I had such a good time. And so, um, yeah, I lost track of the time myself. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, this is great. Thank you so much. Thank you. Linguistics Career Launch 2021 was a one month intensive program intended to familiarize linguistics students and faculty with career options beyond academia in business, tech, government, and nonprofit organizations. Videos of all our recorded sessions are available on our YouTube channel. LCL 2021 was organized by Nancy Frischberg, Alexander Johnston, Emily Pace, Susan Steele, and Laurel Sutton you can get in touch at linguisticscareerlaunch at gmail.com.